morning's reading is from 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, how are we? Are we good? Everybody feeling good? Enjoying their Florida winter, which is the envy of the free world. (laughs) Florida's killing it this year. It's great. It's nice. I'm enjoying it. All right, so, oh, back up my notes. I've done this already today. Um, uh, Today, we are talking about our souls and the centering of our souls and, and how we are to feed our souls what we have been feeding them, what we should be feeding them, um, and how to tell whether or not your soul has been eating well. Yeah? Okay. Because I like to, I was taught years ago, tell the people what you're going to say, and then say say what you're going to say, and then tell them what you just said. So I'll probably, there'll be two reviews. Um, So I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and we're going to jump into this. We yes, I'm, so far we're on track for like two verses a week. I don't, I don't know. It's going to be a while. Um, Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you are doing in our midst. Thank you for my brothers and sisters for bringing them here. Thank you for our community. Um, Thank you for um, binding us together, even though we are all so different. Um, You are the center of everything that that we strive to do. Help us to remember that. Help us to keep focus inside of that. Um, I lift up those here this morning who are carrying very heavy burdens. People bring very heavy things into um, church gatherings on Sunday mornings, and um, they come looking for answers and to be discipled, and I ask that you would give them some of what they need, that you would maybe even give them more questions to keep them seeking. Um, But I would ask that you would help us to gather up all these things and push them aside so that we can be here, present in your midst, focusing on you, realizing that, that you are here with us, loving us, and that just for now, we can, we can focus on that. And if we can focus on that for the time that we are together, and every time we get together, then maybe it will start bleeding over into the rest of our lives. And, and, and maybe it will start giving us some understanding and some peace. So give us, give, us, um, give us knowledge this morning, and give us wisdom to apply that knowledge. Help me to communicate clearly. Make us joyful. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. All right. Verse 11. Uh, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Um, we're going to start here with these two words, sojourners and exiles. Sojourners is the word peroikos. Everyone say peroikos. Great. Hey, you're fluent. Fluent. It's great. Um, it means stranger. I'm like hyped up. I don't know why. Um, it means stranger and foreigner. Now, um, the, this was not a positive word. This was kind of an insult. Um, this was a very negative term. People who were sojourners, exiles, people who were living in a place that, that they weren't born in um, were considered lower than slaves. And in fact, to live there, they had to pay. They had to pay an alien tax. Um, they had to um, put others sort of in every situation in, in, in lines and whatever. They had to let other people go first. They were the least. Um, slaves were, again, considered higher than them. Um, the only way that they could really even become uh, citizens and no longer sojourners or exiles 
uh, was by either paying a bunch of money or selling themselves into slavery for seven years. And in fact, in Rome, um, most of the slaves who were slaves in Rome sold themselves into slavery so that after they worked out their term, they could have citizenship in Rome. Um, they, were, they were people from other places. Um, so uh, the next word we have is uh, exiles, peripedemos, peripedemos. Yeah, I'm trying to help, I'm trying to get you to say the words. All right. um, a person staying somewhere temporarily and had a permanent home elsewhere. This would be someone who um, <clears throat> knew they didn't belong there and had no plans to stay there. They were there for a reason and they were planning on going back. Their heart was not there. They didn't really care about the city they were in all that much. They didn't really get involved in what was going on. Um, they didn't have um, a horse in the race, basically, is how good way to say it. Like, they didn't really um, invest in the, the politics of it all because they actually were from another place completely, and nothing that happened here would affect them. Um, and so they were kind of impervious to the problems and struggles of that city, though, even though they were living in it. Um, there's lots of ancient writings from the first century about what the people thought about exiles and sojourners. Um, there's a man named Aristeus, and he wrote this, It is a fine thing to live and die in one's native land. A foreign land brings contempt to poor men and shame to rich men. For there is a lurking suspicion that they have been exiled for the evil that they have done. Uh, we see this today in our country. Um, people seem to be very um, suspicious of immigrants in general, um, be it from racism under uh, deep-seated sort of like a, a past, a history um, with a certain people group um, or just something they've been indoctrinated in to, to hate a, a certain group of people. Um, a lot of it, though, has to come from suspicion. Why are they here? What do they want? Where, why, why did they have to flee where they came from? What part did they have in, in causing it to become a terrible place to flee from? Um, and then the general protective posture of, well, then I don't want that happening here. And so this is not a Christian attitude. This is a typically, though, a human attitude. It always has been from the beginning of time. Um, fear of immigrants, uh, the fear of the migrant people, minorities coming in to your neighborhood has always been a human thing. And actually, when the church started, this ended because the church brought all of the people from different nationalities, groups, and social statuses together to worship God. It has no place in the Christian walk. Um, but nevertheless, it exists. Now, um, <clears throat> in Hebrews 11, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, of course, I have my own ideas, um, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, we don't know for sure, um, spoke about the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs in the Old Testament. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, all of them. Um, he writes about them as no, having the mindset of our home is somewhere else. We belong somewhere else, but we are here for a purpose and a reason. Um, and so Hebrews chapter 11, when you read this, he, it talks a bit about the starting of verse 13 and kind of skipping the middle part of it. Um, These all died in faith, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. So he's speaking about all of the leaders of the Old Testament. They all had this general idea that where they were, their souls were not at home. They didn't belong. The, the structures that were set up, the societal structures didn't seem right and just to them. It didn't seem fair to them. And 
They spent a lot of time listening to God as God led them around. God would say, leave your people, go here, move here, go here. And then he would take them in, I have a promised land for you, take them to the promised land. Then they would get exiled and he would say, I'm going to take you back. And then other things would happen. Um, and so there's this general idea that, that the ancient Old Testament people had that they didn't have some certain land that was theirs. They worshiped a God whose domain was the entire world. Um, and so wherever they went, it was not that they belonged there. It was that they belonged with God. Their hearts belonged connected to God, which is why they never fit in in societal structures because society is a place built in the absence of God to create order and peace. And so they knew from the beginning that they were sojourners and exiles. Now, um, if you were to go back and ask First century Jews, what is the main principle that is taught in the Old Testament? What is the whole idea of the Old Testament? If there's one thing I can learn from it, what is it? Even if you ask a lot of theologians today, what's the one thing I can learn from the Old Testament that is um, vitally important? They would, they would say the primary principle of the Old Testament is the refutation of idolatry. From beginning to end, from Genesis um, all the way to Malachi, um, or Malachi, however you want to say it, um, it, it is the refutation of idols. Joke grenade. Trying to keep you guys awake today. Um, it's the refutation of idols, especially in the book of Genesis. God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them there in the garden. He says, you have everything you need. You need nothing. I am here with you. I will walk with you. I will be here with you. And what do they do? They know that God has everything, that everything desire that they have, they sh- should be met in a way that God has given them to meet. But they get curious and they start thinking, well, maybe I can meet my desires this way or this way. Fast forward a few thousand years and we are in a world that is riddled with complete sin that is born of idolatry. Completely born of idolatry. Um, Taking God off of the throne where he should be and putting something else there and thinking, maybe what I was supposed to get from God, I can get from this thing. And then you um, you have all these Old Testament characters like Jacob just going place to place, trying to find um, the purpose and meaning that he was supposed to have, trying to find joy and happiness and fulfillment in um, status in marriage, in getting a super hot wife that he marries turns out to be another woman entirely, so he works another seven years for her, still doesn't come out happy on the other end. Um, his soul just wasn't happy no matter where he was. The soul is very needy. And then you have um, Leah bearing children, thinking, if I can bear a son for my husband, um, then I will find happiness and joy in some physical thing. And so she does this over and over and over, and she never finds the happiness, and finally she bears a son, and it says, and then she prays the Lord, and she never bore any more children because her soul was suddenly at peace because she connected, reconnected with God. And so the general idea of the Old Testament is the refutation of idolatry. <clears throat> idolatry is very destructive to the soul. Idolatry is when we feed our soul things that our soul cannot be nourished by, cannot digest, and that is actually destructive. You know, we have a whole culture that talks a lot about whole foods. Everything should be whole because if it's not a whole food, this is what it does to your body. Um, this applies to the spiritual realm as well. Uh, We are always trying to let our, we are in a society that that teaches you um, your physical body has all of these different urges and you need to meet them so you'll be happy. When we talk about happy language, um, people don't want to admit it, but we're talking about soul language. Happy, like happy doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. You don't talk a lot about animals very much as being happy. We talk about us as having joy and being happy and, and we mean fulfilled in our soul. Yet we are always trying to feed our soul physical stuff, flesh stuff. Stuff that cannot make the soul happy. And then our soul is miserable. 
And so Peter kind of puts this in context. So he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, you could stop here and think, okay, so he's talking about um, in, in a literal sense, because they literally were, the people who received this letter really, really were sojourners and exiles. They were on the run. They were going to other places, new places. And I'm sure they were being insulted and they were, they, people were suspicious of them for being there. Um, but he's not talking in a literal sense because the solution that he gives them for being so, sojourners and exiles um, is a soul thing. He says, as sojourners and exiles, uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Somehow abstaining from the, passage, passage, uh, from the passions of your flesh will make people hate you less when you're in their foreign land. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's referring to it in an Old Testament way. We are in this world exiles and sojourners. We have a soul that is yearning for something else entirely that knows that it cannot, the needs of the soul cannot be met by anything that our flesh wants to feed it. And our soul is yearning and it's, it's, it's hungry we are sojourners and exiles. We don't necessarily belong here in this society. Um, and he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. They wage war against your soul. Peter has been talking about, uh, he uses this phrase, born again. Um, and when he says born again, uh, a, few, a few verses back, what he's talking about is, Disconnecting from the passions of your flesh, making that the center of your life, of what you live for, and allowing the Holy Spirit of God to rebuild how you have structured your life. By your life, I mean um, how your mind and your soul interact with your, the flesh around you, the world around you. And so you are allowing, when you are born again, you have allowed God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to rebuild your life with something new at the center, the Spirit of God connected to the spirit of you, your soul. And around that is your mind, which is fed by your soul, not the other way around. And on the outside, you would find your physical connection to the world, which would flow from what is on the inside. So there has to be something on the inside of your soul. When you are born again, you are putting something on the inside of your soul and you are living from that place. That is what it means to be born again. Um, You are no longer living the way the world was. Now you are living the way that God has commanded you to live. And it is only done by the power of the Holy Spirit through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, reconciling you to God, re-establishing that life source, that connection. Um, and so our soul is very, very, very sensitive to what you feed it. Um, our soul is very, very needy. There is no end to the neediness of the soul, but there is only one thing that can fill it. Now, um, so some really interesting studies have been done at, um, at Duke and at Harvard um, that have to do with um, I don't want to describe these things wrong. Um, that have to do with uh, examining the impact of what, what is called fake adornment on our ethics. Um, and by fake adornment, they mean fake sunglasses, fake Rolexes, fake handbags, fake stuff um, that we put on so that we can paint a picture that we are something that we are not. And they have studied what this does to the rest of our life, our psyche, our ethics. And the results are incredibly fascinating. Um, so what they did was they took 500 pairs of Chloe sunglasses, very expensive sunglasses, and they gave them to 500 women who were participating in the test. Half of those women at random were told, um, those sunglasses you're holding that we just gave you are actually knockoffs, they're fake. But they were real. 
And the rest were told, yes, those are real, expensive $500 Chloe sunglasses. Um, and then, after giving them these sunglasses, letting them wear them for the day, um, they had to bring their sunglasses and wear them on their head as they took this test. And so they sat down and they took a test that was a math equation that was impossible to solve in the amount of time allotted. But if you solved these questions and got them right, you would receive a monetary reward. But nobody was checking your scores. You would do the problems, and they would give you the answers, and then you would sign on the honor system, yes, I got this many right. Now, what they found was the women who they had given fake sunglasses to were 70% more likely to lie, to cheat, and to steal than those who knew they were wearing real Chloe sunglasses. Fascinating. Um, More than double more than double, just because they had fake sunglasses on their head. Now, um, they did other tests where they would have to judge people, and they found that the equal amount of people, uh, 70%, the people who were um, wearing the fake sunglasses were 70% also more likely to judge people more harshly and judge themselves less harsh. And so somehow, this act of putting on something that was not real putting off the vibe to the world that it was and letting other people believe that you were something that you were not changed your entire interaction with everything. It made you more sinful, more negative. And so I'm not saying all of this to knock all of you who are wearing fake sunglasses. I am, however, giving you permission to buy real ones. And you can say, say, look, it's not for me. It's for my soul. Um, Now, The soul has this intense desire to be whole. The soul desperately wants your entire existence, your life, your your body, your mind, and your spirit to be one. It wants them all to be the same. In other words, integrity, which comes from the word integer, which means one. We've talked about this several times. It's you want to be one person. Your soul desperately wants you to be one person. The problem is most of us spend a lot of time pretending we are not someone that we are. And it is incredibly difficult for your soul to bear. And you are feeding it something that is an illusion and that does not satisfy and it damages your soul. The soul is very, very sensitive to even the smallest sins. And we never think about this. We never think about what do the small things do to my life. The, just, it's just the image. It's just I want people to think I'm more successful than I actually am. And this is the opposite of what church is. Church is a house where we all come and, and we're a body of believers and we are honest with each other. We confess exactly everything, who we are, what's going on, but, and who Jesus is and what he has done to fix us. And so the fake sunglasses game we have found, even science has proven to us, is damaging to the soul. Now, um, this is the definition of idolatry. It is trying to receive something from a source that you were not intended to receive it from. Um, You were never meant to find your identity in what you wear, who you are married to, what you do for a living, or your net worth. None of it. Where you're from, none of it. You You were never meant to find your self worth in that. You were meant to find your self worth in the fact that the creator of the universe created you and loves you desperately, even to the point of dying on a cross and suffering the death that you deserved for you. That is where you find your identity, in the God who is near, 
even when you are attempting to be far. The God who is closer to you than you could ever be. The the God who there is nothing you could do to make him love you more or less. That is where you were to find your identity. Not in the fake sunglasses. And what that does to your soul when you pretend that that is where you get your identity. That is idolatry and idolatry is is super damaging to your soul. Now, um, we all sort of remember a couple years back what happened in Brandon, Florida, um, almost two years ago, Brandon, woo, um, almost two years ago, it's about, uh, about 30 minutes from here, and, and about two years ago, there was a man asleep in his bed, about 36 years old, asleep in his bed. Uh, the house showed no signs of any problems at all, and suddenly a sinkhole opened up under the house and sucked his bedroom down into the ground, and he disappeared, never to be seen again. Died instantly. Um... Sinkholes are interesting things. They, 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 they are built over very, very long periods of time, um, possibly hundreds of years. Caverns are, are worn away, and they open up, um, and <clears throat> nobody has any idea that they're there. There's no way of knowing, and then suddenly there is this catastrophic collapse where everything is just sucked into the void and, and destroyed. Now, um, one of my favorite books is called, uh, I've always forgot the name of it, Ordering Your Private World. Yeah, my favorite books. I've never actually read it. No. Um, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and so I listen to this one twice a year. I never catch the title. Um, Ordering Your Private World. It's by, it's by Gordon MacDonald. Now, um, it is a very old book. It was written long before, I, I believe, I was even born. Um, and it, it basically is about your internal life and how you should be ordering it and how you should be nurturing it and how you should be feeding it. And... Um, he talks about how our soul is also susceptible to sinkholes. There is this thing that happens in our life um, where it happens for a very long time, and, 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 but when it goes, it goes. Um, and he writes this, Our lives are susceptible to sinkholes. In the feelings of numbing fatigue, apparent failure, or disillusionment about God, about goals or purposes, we may have sensed something about to give way. There seems to be little we can do to prevent such a collapse. Yet we may discover, in the, discover the existence of an inner space, our private world, which, if neglected, won't sustain the weight of events and pressures that press upon it. Some people realize that they have spent the majority of their time and energy sustaining life on the visible surface levels. And they've accumulated excellent assets, like academic degrees, work experience, relationships, and physical strength. And often we discover too late that our private world is is in a state of disorderliness. That's, when that's, when, when that's true, we're vulnerable to the sinkhole syndrome. So he's basically saying that um, oftentimes your soul sort of is not being fed and nourished. And here's the thing, the outside world is very, very loud. And you don't notice because there's so many people pawing at you and there's so many things that you need to do. And... Um, there's so much stress in your life that you, you never hear your soul when it's crying out for help, when it's dying. Um, and too often we just don't feed it. And then you, you read regularly about um, a person just making a decision that was so out of character and catastrophic to their life. And you say, how in the world did they get there? It is the natural progression when you do not feed your soul to open up that cavern inside and one day it will collapse. Your soul has to have a center. You have to feed it things that will fill it up. If you feed it the things of the flesh thinking that it will be at peace and happy, 
it will die. Um, Oscar Wilde puts it best, better than really anybody when he talks about his own experience. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. And that, there, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has someday to cry aloud on the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul. And I did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me and I ended in horrible disgrace. It cannot be said better than that. There comes a time when you realize, I don't think I'm in control here anymore. When you are so susceptible to the world around you that you're just losing it. Um, and, and so I guess the, the question that I think we need to address is um, how can you tell when you are, quote, no longer the captain of your own ship, when everyone else is controlling it or when nobody's controlling it? Um, how can you tell when your soul has lost its center? How can you tell when you, are, when you have not been filled up in so long that you are starving to death and your life is in danger of collapse? Um, I think there's a few ways. I'm, I'm going to list a few of them, the things that I've learned, things that, that I've, I've learned from other people, other writings. Um, and so maybe you'll see yourself in some of these. I hope not. Um, first off, I, a soul without a center feels constantly vulnerable to people and circumstances, constantly vulnerable to people and circumstances. The people around you are in control of you because you, ha- you want to live up to their standards. You have to control your image. You you, they, you, they have to view you in a certain way, and so you have to maintain this. And then the circumstances, you know, things go bad, and when that happens, uh, things just collapse. You ever just fly off the handle out of nowhere and you have no idea where that came from? You, don't, you didn't realize that you were so vulnerable to just the circumstances of life going on around you. Turns out you are. And it is a sign that your soul has lost its center. And there's a lot of people in scriptures that have dealt with the same thing. Elijah, the great Elijah, was under threat of Jezebel. And he ran for his life. Peter, the author of this very book, um, was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, whom he had walked with and seen do miracles and seen walk on water and learn from and sat at his feet. And, and Jesus washed his own feet. He understands who Jesus is. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers come, he fears for his life and he flees, only to deny Jesus, even knowing him, three times. And, and the, scriptures, the, the description of it is, is heartbreaking. The very last time he denies, he's at a campfire, like sitting around warming his hands, and someone hears his accent and says, you, you speak like you're from there. You, you're friends of Jesus. I know who you are. You're one of his followers. And he says, no, I, I did not know the man. I swear to you, I've never spoken with the man, and it says that Jesus is within earshot, and Jesus turns and looks at him. Can you imagine the weight of that? Realizing that your soul has no center in the presence of Jesus. I think a lot of people will. I, I can't imagine what he's going through. And, and, then, and then there are others who who knew their soul had a center and they were not shaken by anything. There's Paul writing all these letters from prison um, and, and trusting God to take care of him even though it didn't end well for him. He never thought it was ending bad at all. He thought it was ending exactly the way that God wanted it to end. Um, <clears throat> Peter, the same God that I just talked about a little later on in life, wrote this letter now, which is an incredible testament to how far he had come. Um, to realizing what his soul should be centered on. And it was Jesus. And then you have Jesus himself. 
in a boat in the middle of a storm, sleeping. I mean, that's how it's done. I can't imagine. Like, I don't, that's, we want to be like Jesus. That's what we're aiming for. I mean, come on. Like, he knows. He knows what's going on. Um, and so that's one way. Another way that I think you, that you know your soul doesn't have a center is if it lacks patience. Um, a lot of us are intensely impatient with everyone and everything every moment of the day and you're always looking for the next thing I gotta get to the next thing I gotta accomplish the next thing um, your conversations are kind of rushed um, and you want people sometimes to just get to the point so you can answer the question you can fix the problem you can talk to the next person because you're busy you got stuff to do you're important and uh, you get on the road and people are driving slow because we live in Florida and that's God's waiting room and if people just <laughs> people drive slow and you're honking and like you're like come on <laughs> speed limit's like 60 and you're like 10 you're like 10 miles an hour um, and you're frustrated and you just want to get where you're going not that it's anywhere important I mean you're not a superhero you're not going anywhere you're going to the grocery store and then you get to the grocery store and the lady in front of you pulls out coupons and you're like come on like seriously where do you got to go your soul is not at home your soul doesn't even have a home anywhere in this world. Like it's not, there's not somewhere where you will go and your soul will be like, I made it. No, your soul is at home with God in the moment that you are alive in, knowing that God is with you and that, that if you would slow down and look at people, you might actually see that you have a purpose for being where you are at that specific time. Um, some of us are just so busy. I, I think when you're so busy and you're anxious to get to the next thing, and I do this, I struggle with this a lot. Um, and I, I think it's, it's when my soul is just not, I've pulled it from its home and I think there's stuff I have to do for some reason that will make my soul happy, but I just need to be and I need to plug back into Jesus and be like, okay, thank you for letting me be here. Thank you for this car. Thank you for this lady slowing me down so that I have time to think. And I, have time, I can look around me and I can look at people's faces and I can just be different. I can, I can live a holy life, different life. That's what that means. Um, and I mean, there's other ways and I don't have time to like list them all out, but here's a few more. A soul without a center is not decisive, has a hard time choosing between, uh, uh, you know, there's the right thing. I know this is what I should do, but if I do this, it won't hurt. And so you, when you're indecisive between the two things, the things that's right and the thing that hurts, your soul doesn't have a center. Paul didn't have trouble making that decision because his soul was set. Um, a soul without a center manages an identity. And I've already talked about this. It runs around. Hey, that thing you heard about me, just want you to know, it's not true, okay? Just want, it, it's actually like this, okay? Just, oh, so you know, okay, I, got, I just want to make sure you knew, okay? Hey, um, I didn't do that. I know you, you were wondering, maybe I did that, I didn't do that. And you care so much about what everyone thinks of you. You're managing your identity. You're running around like posting, posting Oscar Wilde quotes on your Facebook, hoping everyone looks at like, wow, he reads Oscar Wilde. Oh, smart. Um, like, I don't read Oscar Wilde, by the way. I just stumbled across that earlier this week. I've never read him. Um, but that was brilliant. I, re- I read that because it was brilliant. Um, and so we're always managing, we're, we're managing everything. If your soul had a center and it was at home, you'd have no need of that. Silence is a spiritual discipline. Um, I kind of wrote about that earlier this week. I, you know, uh, some people fire off unwarranted emails to people in their lives whom they just get mad at. 
Email is the coward's way of, of expressing your feelings. Um, and sometimes you receive these things and you have to go through and say, okay, here's all the personal attacks. I'm not even going to answer these. They don't matter to me. God is my defender. I'm going to practice the spiritual discipline of silence and simplicity because I don't need to have this big complex image for everyone to look at. I'm just going to wipe these away and I'm going to answer the actual question, the criticism of the thing that actually matters. I'm going to find the meat in it and I'm going to just respond to what matters in a graceful way. Um, there's, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of different ways you can know. Maybe you've sensed some of them. You could probably add to this list. But I want to get to the next verse, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, um, keep your conduct among people honoring to God. Honorable. It has a spiritual connotation here. This, this is not just, this is not in the same way that we today would use honoring like, like they're impressed or anything like that. This was something that honors their humanity, affirms that they are loved by God and important and that you are there with them, that you are their brother or their sister. Um, keep it loving and honorable. And then he says this, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, um, Peter heard this somewhere. Do you know where Peter heard this? From Jesus. This is, this is almost an, an exact quote from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And so in order to fully understand what he wants to say here and why he's saying this, we need to look at the context of Matthew chapter 5. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says it, he says it here in verse 16, but you have to read the entire paragraph because it caps it off at the end. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there it is in the end. It caps off this whole thing. And what is Jesus talking about here? He says, well, um, so the world, um, he sort of uses like salt, like nothing has taste, but you are salt. And I'm putting you there. You're different. You bring something to it that is different. And then he says, the world is dark and you are light in the middle of a dark world. You know what he's saying? You are sojourners and exiles. That's what you are. Exactly what the context in which Peter was talking, I'm, it's almost like, he was writing this and it brought into his head, this is what Jesus taught me and this is what he was saying. We are sojourners and exiles. We are in a world where our soul um, isn't fed but should feed others and, and it, it shines bright and it lights people up. And, and, and Jesus is saying, and it's like a lamp and it, it attracts people. They, they look at it and they say, wow, look at them. They're different. The storm is raging and they're sleeping. The, there's battles all around them and they're just peace and calm. They're not in a hurry. It's almost like they know something that I don't know. And it's true. You know something that they don't know. And they will not know it unless you first model it for them to see. And then it says they will ask you about it. They will say, what is it that you have? And they will glorify God. It, it, they will see you and say, whatever you're doing is better than what I'm doing because I am just stressed out. Whatever you have in your life that brings you this much peace, um, and by saying this, they are glorifying God because you have God. And they are lifting God up and they're saying, whatever it is that you have, I have to have that. What is it? 
Jesus said a lot. He talked a lot about how um, the deeds and our actions in this world and the way we respond to things draws people to God. It's not theological trickery that draws people to God. It's not talking people into it. It's they see light and they want it. So maybe you're here today and, and some of this is you. Maybe you feel like maybe Oscar Wilde was reading your mail. Like, wow, that's, I feel that way. Like I've lost control. I feel like I, I fly off the handle at the drop of a hat. I daily cry over spilled milk. And I, that's a joke, never mind. Um, and I, I'm just not feeling the way I should. Um, you need Jesus. You need something at the center. You need to be a disciple of his. You need to study him and, and talk to him and open dialogue with him and, and, and keep him close. Just fill your heart with that. You, your soul needs to be fed, not by the things of the flesh. They, they will not fulfill it. They will not make it happy. They are actually actively waging war on the things that will make you happy. So we're going to take communion and we're going to spend some time in communion. Communion is an important thing in our community. And so our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and get ready. Um, we, we do this uh, to remember what Jesus did for us when he opened up that connection to God, plugged us back into our spirit. Um, we were dying vines and, and he plugged us back in to the, the very source of life. And so... If you are a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to take communion. But first, I would like you to spend some time in prayer. I would like you to ask God to reveal to you the places where you are just not anchored in him. Um, I want you to ask yourself what your life reveals to you. Are you impatient? Are you angry? Are you in a hurry? Do you, do you, are people a nuisance? Do you care about those around you? Are you trying to find happiness in all of these things that have nothing to do with God? Or that are the opposite of, of how God told you you will get them? So think about those things, dwell on those things, and we're going to pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for everything you are doing for us. Make us whole, fill us with you, center us on you. Make us whole people. Let our, our private life and our public life be one life. Our insides and our outside be one side of us. Don't let us splinter our soul and try to feed it things that, that, that it shouldn't be devouring. Bring us back, uh, resurrect us to be as we were created to be, to find the sources of life exactly where you gave, them, gave us to find them. Thank you. In your name. Amen.